Praise ye the Lord. Sing unto the Lord a new song and his praise in the congregation of the saints. The Lord taketh pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Let us bow our hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. Let us pray. As we gather, Lord, as we gather this evening, as we gather on your day, as we are thankful, Lord, for the freedom that we have in being able to gather on the Lord's day, that we don't have to work, God, and that there's still employment opportunities, Lord, in which we can avoid working on the Lord's day as we are able. We pray for, Lord, Lord, certainly those brothers and sisters that cannot do that, God, and they're not in a situation to do that, that you would be with them and help them uh, to change that as possible. Our God and Savior in particular, we're thankful not only have the Lord's Day, but to have the Lord's Day as a time of worship, to hear your word, to sing praises before you, to have the prayer of God's people, Lord, here publicly, and to be with the saints. We ask and pray, God, that you would be with us as a church, as providence here in particular, Lord, for our leaders and for our members, Lord, to grow in love for one another, to grow in obedience to your word and law, to desire the sincere and pure milk of the word of God as we heard this morning. We pray, God, for opportunity outreach, for speaking to others, Lord, to invite them to church, God, for the growth of our church, knowing, Lord, that you are behind all things and trusting and resting upon you. We pray certainly for our spiritual growth, to be more like Jesus, to grow in love and obedience to your word. Pray not only for the outreach of our church, but the outreach of other Orthodox Presbyterian churches and other faithful churches, form tradition in particular, God, that you would be with them and help them uh, to find and go out as they are able, Lord. It takes money and time. There's so much din and noise out there in terms of churches and other activities and events, Lord, that the churches, faithful churches have to compete against. They have to make a noise, as it were, to make themselves known. It becomes very hard, God. So we pray for the churches, many of which are small, uh, Lord, yet faithful to you and desirous to do the right thing. We pray give them wisdom, Lord, uh, to know how to reach out, Lord, and to how to use the common sense that you've given us, especially in this day and age of many uh, abilities and opportunities, it seems, that we may have, God, with technology, with the internet, with social media and the like, Lord, but even there, they're overwhelmed with so much uh, misdirection and confusion, Lord, it's hard, again, to find a faithful church. Help us, Lord, to find the right people. May they find us, God, both the believers and unbelievers, Lord, so that we can preach the gospel to them and share our uh, love and wealth of Jesus Christ with them. We pray for Christian education, God, that we would take it seriously, that we would uh, desire to learn more of your word, to remember that we are called to be pupils and disciples of Jesus Christ, and that the church uh, is a school of sorts, Lord, in which we learn about Jesus, we learn about his gospel, we learn about the law of God, and how to live our lives in light of the truth of your word. We pray, God, that we would do what we can. Certainly, we're not all called to be pastors, Lord, so may we not unduly beat ourselves up. And yet, may we do what we can, a little here, a little there, to read your Bible, to have some memorization, to pray in accordance to it, to uh, learn about it as we can, God, and to grow thereby. We pray especially for our children, children of the covenants, that they uh, would grow thereby, that they would learn their Bibles, that they would learn uh, the truths of the gospel and the truths of the law, Lord, and internalize it, that your spirit would be with them, Lord, that you would protect them from the undue influence of this world and all the wickedness out there and the false teachings through the schools and the like, Lord, even at times that we've we found out, unfortunately, in Christian schools. And so, God, we ask that the churches and the families who gather together and help one another learn of your word, especially the teachers, that we would support godly pastors and, and teachers, Lord, to instruct us, to guide us, to protect us, and to feed us, as we will see this morning, this evening, God, and next week as well as we learn about the good pastors, Lord. May we flee from the bad pastors, God. As we see this evening, Lord, how you are very upset about false teachers. 
May we have the same zeal as you have towards your truth. Our God and Savior, we pray for our nation. We pray for Colorado. We pray for Denver. And again, we are thankful, Lord, that we've gone out of emergency (laughs) orders for the last year, and we're going back to normal and large extents. We are thankful for answering our prayers. And to that end, especially for the many churches that had very little um, financial and uh, political leverage that way. And so, Lord, we pray for upright laws to be maintained, for righteous rulers, Lord, even those who are unbelievers, God, can do many good things. We pray for them, Lord. We certainly pray that they would be Christians and Christian leaders, God. Nevertheless, we would be satisfied with uh, somebody somewhere doing the right thing and maintaining righteous laws uh, for the protection of our fellow citizens, to be sure, but especially for the protection of the Church of Jesus Christ, that we would not be undermined that our uh, civil rights that we've had this nation established upon, in particular with Christian uh, language in our confessions, the original confessions of the colonies, God, be protected and be watched over, Lord. Watch over Christians in particular, Lord, who are in secular businesses, God, and the hardship that's upon them and the stress and the pressure, Lord, as we see, especially in this month, this month that is beautiful for us, but has been turned to wicked advertisement, Lord, for wicked lifestyles uh, everywhere. And so, God, we pray that they would be undermined and shut down and that those who go that route would indeed uh, be impoverished economically. Uh, not because, Lord, we are delighting into seeing people being impoverished, but because they are promoting wickedness, Lord, against adults and especially children. And we wish them to be shut down. But we also wish for their conversion. We wish, Lord, that they would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would find a faithful church and meet a faithful Christian somewhere, God, to warn them of the dangers and hell to come and the glories of Jesus Christ and the call of repentance. Protect us, Lord, economically and socially and politically, we pray with righteous laws and righteous leaders through all levels of government and social influence. We ask God in particular to be with us this week. Watch over uh, those who are struggling with COVID. Uh, Mr. Becker, Lord, Mark Becker, as he has it very badly now. And we pray that he's getting over the hump, Lord, and that he gets the sleep that he needs and his body would overcome it. We pray for the rest of us, God, that are struggling with various ailments and sicknesses in our bodies, God. Keep us safe and protected, Lord, that we would do what we can. We pray for work this week, that we would go well, that we would persevere, Lord, that we would take it one day at a time. And we pray, God, for good bosses and good working conditions, Lord, and help us, Lord, to have wisdom in those situations in which they are not so good and they are difficult, in fact, uh, to know when to leave a company, when to speak, and when to be quiet. We pray for a productive week, God, whether at home as mothers and children, Lord, um, and our retirees, God, or at work and, and abroad or wherever we may go this week, that we would take things one day at a time to be organized and structured as we can, Lord, as you are organized and structured, God, as you read in 1 Corinthians 14, all things should be done in decency and good order. And so, God, we ask for your blessings upon our efforts this week. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Let us turn to our Bibles to Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 11. And quite a chapter here. Zechariah chapter 11, verses 7 through 17. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. So I fed the flock for slaughter, in particular the poor of the flock. I took for myself two staffs, and the one I called beauty, and the other I called bonds, and I fed the flock. I dismissed the three... I dismissed the three shepherds in one month, and my soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. Then I said, I will not feed you. Let what is dying and what is perishing perish. Let those that are left eat each other's flesh. And I took my staff and beauty and cut it in two, that I might break the covenant which I made with all the peoples. So it was broken on that day. Thus the poor and the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages. And if not, refrain. So they weighed out for me 
my wages, 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that the princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it into the house of the Lord for the potter. Then I cut into my other staff, bonds, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And the Lord said to me, next, take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. For indeed, I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that still stand. But he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear their hooves in pieces. Woe to the worthless shepherd. Woe uh, who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall be completely withered, and his right eye shall be totally blinded. Let us pray. With these strong words, God, we see your zeal for your people and protecting them, God, but also in bringing judgment upon the shepherd's Lord and the members of God that are rebellious even. We see, Lord, the sheep themselves. We pray, God, that our hearts would not lead in this way, that you'd protect us from such rebellion, but more importantly, God, that we would stir up in our hearts a zeal for your truth, that we too would flee, Lord, false shepherds, and warn other people about them, God, and the judgment that will come upon people who will follow false teachers. In the name alone we pray. Amen. This whole chapter full of bad news, like watching cable news or something in the evening the last year. It seems like we wouldn't want to hear this bad news. We have enough bad news of our own in this day and age, to be sure. Yet God put it in the Word for us to read. It is here to teach us of God's judgment, even upon the church. It's important for us to learn this truth anew in our divisive age in America. We have many false teachers and many false churches. So many we wonder if we're being too mean in calling them false teachers and false churches. How can it be there can be so many false teachers and false churches and so little true churches and true teachers? It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem possible. And so we doubt our senses. Maybe they really aren't that bad, we tell ourselves. And I can appreciate that sentiment. Yet this text calls us back for the zeal of God's truth. It reminds us that there can be too many false teachers. Here in the Old Testament church, there were too many false teachers, so many false teachers, and so many rebellious sheep. God just talks about all of them as a single block. The only exception being he talks about the poor of the flock. There seems to be a remnant within the remnant, as you recall. We must... Trust our senses as directed by God's word, and his word shows much zeal for his truth. Here the zeal is displayed as righteous indignation against false teachers, false shepherds, false pastors, and by implication, false churches. So let's see how serious this is in the light of God's word. We are given a live symbolism, almost a parable, although not much is happening in the parable, but some words. So it's more symbolism, very truncated. Verses 7 through 13, right? The staffs are staves, what we have today, A-V-E-S, as someone reminded me. I'm just using the translation here from the uh, NKJV and the old KJV <coughs> using two F staffs. Two staves for the sheep, we read in verse 7. So I fed the flock for slaughter, in particular the poor of the flock. I took for myself two staffs, the one I called beauty and the other I called the bond, a bonds, and I fed the flock. And he goes on to describe what the symbolism entails and what is going on here with these two staffs, poles, long pieces of stick that a shepherd would use. What does a shepherd use them for? It says here for 
feeding. And as we see, however, as you remember from the last few verses, that the feeding here is not just exclusively instructional. We typically think of feeding as what the pastor does when he preaches. That's true. But it's also something else. It includes protecting. It includes protection. The staff was used to hit the lion, the coyote, the bear. We know David didn't use a staff only. He also used a sling in particular. But the staff represents, it's symbolic to that extent, of protecting the sheep, watching over them. Protecting them, as we saw in the prior uh, verses where the inhabitants were attacking each other and devouring each other, the, feeding the, uh, the feed the flock for slaughter, whose owners slaughter them and feel no guilt, who say, blessed be the Lord, for I am rich. So the slaughtering there is a slaughtering of economic scale, not just spiritual only, making money off of God's people, off the poor in particular. So it is a so- social concern. Uh, we are reading here, and it's continued on in these verses. So the first use of feeding of the sheep with the staffs is protecting. Staffs are for for protecting the sheep while moving them towards food and being fed therein. Here, So the shepherd, shepherd, as I went a little detail last week, is again not just the pastor but the king. They called David a shepherd. They said, you were promised to be our shepherd by God, that is, our king. And that is an ancient Near East symbolism of the shepherd, that the king was also a shepherd. He was there to protect his people, his nation. They understood in the ancient Near East, although, of course, from a pagan perspective and with pagan rituals and a lot of violations of God's law, but at least on a national level, they understood that the king was the father and the shepherd of the people, unlike America, where unfortunately many of our politicians Uh, devour the people, for they are there just for their economic gain only. And they had a a noble tradition. We used to have a tradition like that in America, and it's died off, unfortunately. And that's to highlight the fact that shepherding here is not just the church per se, but also in society. So if we had a Christian society, which we don't anymore, more or less, we would expect our social leaders, not just politicians, to exercise their power to help those in need, to be a positive influence, and the like, right? To maintain that shepherding stance towards the people is the point here. Although, obviously, I'm going to emphasize uh, the spiritual and the instructional aspect of the churchly aspect in this text, and especially the poor. So I fed the flock for slaughter, in particular, the poor of the flock. Poor of the flock. Again, probably literally poor. They were being... They were the, the wealthy and the rich were being more rich and making more wealth upon them. The shepherds did not pity them, it says in verse 5, but rather felt no guilt in saying, Blessed be the Lord, and making all kinds of money off the backs of the poor. Wow. And God's judgment upon them in verse 6, Indeed, I will give everyone into his neighbor's hand and to the hand of the king. In other words, it wasn't just the rich. Apparently it was everyone in society who was trying to get, make a fast buck off of everyone else. And, of course, lying, as in the case of priests and prophets, lying for profit and saying peace, peace, when there is no peace, for example. You all know that passage in Ezekiel. Maybe that's what's going on here. We don't have a lot of details uh, other than uh, clear hints that it's also economic, some economic gain going on here in the social realm and in the churchly realm as well. Of course, feeding, or the staff is not only for feeding, 
The staff also not only for protection, excuse me, represents protection, but represents feeding in particular as in instruction and preaching, as I am doing this evening, exercising that function of a shepherd. Uh, to warn, to instruct, to guide towards the right path away from the wolves in the fields. So this is especially for religious leaders and the priests and the prophets of the Old Testament, and of course the pastors today, who are supposed to instruct both the good news, the gospel, and the bad news. There's wolves out there. Beware of them. There are people who will take advantage of you and devour you, cannibalize their own people because they are traitors. It's a symbolic admonition upon the sheep as well as upon the shepherds, as we read in verse 17 at the very end. Verses 7 through 14 here. I dismissed the three shepherds in one month. My soul loathed them. I'll cover that in verse 17. Then I said, I will not feed you. Let what is dying die, and what is perishing perish. Let those that are left at each other's flesh. Let left eat each other's flesh. The beauty in the bonds here, that is the two staffs, as he unpacks the idea here. So I took my staff, verse 10, beauty, and cut it in two. And then in verse 14, I took the, um, I took the other staff, bonds, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and the like. So these are physical staffs for visible lesson or symbolic gestures to get their attention. This was commonplace among the prophets of the Old Testament, as you know, that they would do, it seemed to the people, crazy things. That he did it to get their attention because they were so dull of hearing. They were so stubborn in their hearts. I would get your attention. I'd go like that, right? I slam the pulpit, wake you up. That's what he's doing here with the staffs. Wake up the people of God. So beauty, the word can be pleasant, that is to the eyes or the ears, and thus derivatively mean kindness or grace, which of course is pleasant. Some translations may have grace here, the first staff being grace. And the second one is bond, or the bonds, or bounds, some people have, implying the covenant obligation, the connection. And of course we see that here in verse 14, I cut into the, uh, my other staff, bonds that I might break the brotherhood, right? The bond of brotherhood, the connection they have, that relationship that they should have, the love for one another. But we see, of course, they have no love. In verse 6, the prior verses, they hate each other. They don't care about one another. They're devouring one another. God said, fine, you want it? I'll give it to you. As we recall in verse 6, God says, you're going to want your sin? I'll make sin its own judgment. I will not feed you, verses 9 through 10. I read that. I will not feed you. I'll let die, die, and let those who are eating each other, eat each other. And I cut that staff in two, that is the beauty of grace, that I might break the covenant which I made with all the peoples and show them my displeasure, is what he's doing there. Now, he's describing, of course, the rebellious Jews. I do not believe he's describing the poor of the flock. We notice that they were particularly set apart in verse 7. So I fed the flock for slaughter. That is, the flock is being slaughtered by uh, everyone around them, and God has mercy on them through Zechariah, in particular the poor of the flock. And although the poor of the flock is probably the economic poor, not exclusively, often poverty in the Bible or being poor in spirit, we hear in the New Testament, which is there in the Old Testament, is the idea of humility. Those who trust in God, they are the humble ones. Humility is knowing your place before God. These social leaders, and the princes and the shepherds and the prophets who are devouring the flock, 
for easy gain. We're not humble. They are proud. They are not poor. Often that goes together, although we know it's not the case. Many poor people can be very proud in their poverty. (laughs) It's a different matter altogether. And so here, he's going after not every single Jew of the Old Testament, but large swaths of Jews, it seems, and judging them. This is what you're going to do to your own people? This is what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to show you how serious it is. I'm breaking the staff of beauty and grace towards you and bringing judgment instead. I will not feed you. I will not feed you, he says. No, God does not not feed (laughs) the humble. They're going to get fed. Again, this is not across the board. This is for the hardened heart Jews. God says, you're going to get what you want because you're not going to repent. So it's either about, as some take it, the reprobate of Israel. And, of course, a prophet would know about the reprobate because he would have divine revelation from God. We don't know who the reprobate are. We just see stubborn Christians. I'm sure you've all at least met one, if not been one yourself. So in that matter, it could be temporary punishment for hardened hearts to soften their hearts. And that happens to Christians as well. To the elect. The elect can harden their hearts, relatively speaking, right? To be difficult in sitting and have short seasons of sin. I always remind people of David. <laughs> what David did. Or Lot. Wow. Imagine <laughs> living in Lot's family. They're saved. They're not reprobate. God punished them. Lot felt the punishment. Lost his wife. So, God will not feed them. When the church is without a pastor, because of the rebellious in their heart, God is judging them. Sometimes you're without a pastor just by circumstance of providence. It's not your fault. You're not in any particular sin. But sometimes there may be a sin. You'll see it. You'll know it. There's a famine of the word of God in the land. That's, that can be judgment. God doesn't give you the pastors. God doesn't give you the leaders to feed you. That can be judgment from God upon hardened hearts. Jews devouring one another is highlighted here again in verse 9 where he says, Let what is dying die. Let those that are left eat each other's flesh. He leaves them to their own devices. And so their own sins become their own judgments. The rich are consumed by the uber-rich, <laughs> who are consumed by yet other rich people, and the poor are consuming themselves. If you recall in Micah's day, he talked about economic exploitation. I preached through Micah. It was quite illuminating, at least for me, in light of what we have in society going on today and the issues. And he called it cannibalism. They take each other, break their bones, and put it in a pot and eat it. Eat the flesh, he says. And he's describing, again, economic and social power and destruction of their own people. Their bellies are their gods. And so, gods will, so God himself will let their so-called gods devour them and each other. Seeing that, unfortunately, in America, I believe, consumerism and materialism consuming us and each other. We pray against that and fight against that. And so the breaking of the first staff we read there is the covenantal punishment that God gives upon them, showing the seriousness of the sin that they have, that God hates this sin. And it's two sins we know of the shepherd, and it's highlighted in verse 17, woe to the worthless shepherd, but also the sheep themselves. God's talking about the sheep themselves. I will not feed you. Who? The sheep. I will let you each perish. Sometimes the death of the saint is punishment itself. They're still saints. Assume the reprobate. 
God said, I'm going to punish you. You guys are going to devour each other. It may end up being real physical death, but again, I think it's economic uh, originally, with certainly um, teaching lies mixed in with that. The poor being economically and socially used, recognize the authenticity of the word in verse um, 11. So it was broken on that day, thus the poor of the flock who were watching me knew it was the word of the Lord. And I think he's highlighting there, again, the poor in spirit, as those who are humble before God, those who trust in him and follow him, although they cry before God because of the misery they're finding, facing from their own church members slash national you know, citizens. Remember? The citizen is the church member. The church member is the citizen in the Old Testament. And in most ancient Near East, especially the city-states, they recognize the authenticity of the word of God from the mouth of Zechariah. They were the humble ones. They were the ones being attacked by their own neighbors, those who were blaspheming and eating and devouring one another. People of God attacking each other in the name of God is blaspheme indeed in the worst form of being a traitor. You hate your own people. That's what we're seeing here. And these poor people know this. They recognize the voice of God and watching him, watching the visible parable slash symbolism here, knew that it was the word of the Lord. And I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages. If not, refrain. (laughs) This should echo to us when Paul talks about the worker is worthy of his hire. Right? Take care of the pastors, take care of the prophets, take care of the priests, those who are instructing you and preaching to you, the shepherds of God's people. And what do they give him? Give him the wages of a slave. 30 pieces of silver. And I think that symbolizes another act that symbolizes how the average person back then didn't take the word of the prophet very seriously. Might as well have just been a slave to him, to them. Zechariah might as well have been just another slave. You don't see the slave. They're not there. Not like today where everyone hears you when you work. You can have your workers' rights and everything else. You didn't have that back then. Slaves were invisible, especially among the rich. They better be invisible because they're getting in, in the way of the rich otherwise. And the symbolism is the mouth of Zechariah, who's trying to be a a shepherd to the sheep, to the rebellious sheep, they don't want to hear it. They're not listening. They might, he might as well just been a slave. Went in one ear and out the other. That's what his worth was to them. He was just yet another slave. During times of apostasy, that is the case. The faithful preachers and the teachers of God are counted as nothing. They might as well just be a slave, and a slave was less than nothing back then. Although some slaves are worth a lot. They're very valuable. But that's not the point here. The point is, no one's listening. No one wants to listen. They'd rather have their own shepherds. And we, we know God says, you want your own shepherds? I'm going to give you your own shepherds. You don't want me to feed you? I won't feed you. They'll feed you. Where are they going to feed you? They're going to feed you manure. Garbage. So you're blue in the face, and you vomited out your nose and your mouth, just like they did in the desert, right? <clears throat> More or less what God's giving them up to right now. God is judging them. They're flagrantly false teachers and flagrantly rebellious sheep who want false teachers. And we think they can't all be complicit, right? How can that many Jews be complicit? And by extension, how can that many Christians today be complicit with false teachers? And yet they are. 
started out the sermon reminding us the temptation for us to back off and say, well, I, false teacher, I don't know. I mean, maybe he doesn't really mean it. The text here, and you'll see with Paul and others, and in real life, right? In real life, you don't really go a lot of motives when someone's dying, when someone's being murdered, when someone's burning your house down. He didn't mean to burn your house down, but he keeps burning houses down. What do you do? You take the matches from him. You take the authority from him. You take power from him. In fact, you may even kick him out of houses. He has to sleep outside for a while, learn his lesson. You don't ask about motives after a while, do you? When it comes to slaying of souls through lies, it doesn't matter if the guy really means it. If he's not going to change, he will not listen to the presbytery or the people of God, he ought to be kicked out immediately. He ought to be taken care of. And that's what God does. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, we see here rank apostasy going on, uh, widespread it seems, almost through all of Israel at the time, although a small group. It would be very sad to see that, and I think we see a lot more of it today, although I, w- I, w- I don't want to say every church is apostatized. can't say that. A lot of false teachers out there, and a lot of sheep who want the false teachers. They have itching ears, and they like to be tickled. Possibility is there. We see it here in the text. And the judgment here is not upon ignorant fools like children. The word fool we use for the old days for children as they were foolish in the sense that they're just ignorant, they don't really know. These people know. They know better. They were under 70 years of judgment, and God brought them back. God was merciful to them after Babylon. And he instructed them with other prophets, recall. These are full-grown adults who want to feed on their own lust, as he says here. They eat one another's flesh. That's a terribly graphic picture, isn't it? That's how, ang- that's how hateful, spiteful, lustful these people were. And God said, fine, I'm going to give, give them your own shepherds. You're going to get what you want. I dismiss the three shepherds, talking about judging the sheep. Now we're talking about judging the shepherd, verses 8, 15, and 17. I dismiss the three shepherds in one month. My soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. Maybe literally three shepherds, I don't know, representing all the false shepherds and leaders of society at the time. But what's interesting here is God says, My soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. It's mutual. There's an interesting way of people that people tend to think of God for some reason, even in conservative circles, as though our people, another way of looking at it, that somehow people who are really sincere, although not believers, God can't really hate them, can he? They're unbelievers, but they're sincere in their unbelief. Well, there is no sincerity in that sense. That's one of the mistakes we have. They may be sincere about other things with respect to one another with respect to their family, with respect to work. That's true. I've met unbelievers that are more upright than Christians sometimes. But with respect to God, they deny his existence. They won't submit to Christ. That's not sincerity. Romans 1.18 is very clear. They know there's a God. If they deny it, how sincere is that? Not sincere, is it? So it's the object of sincerity we're talking about here. God is angry with the wicked. God is angry with false teachers and false prophets. Clearly here, it seems to me, that these false prophets, and you can see why uh, some authors like Calvin uh, believe that he's talking about the reprobate here, because it says they loathe God and he loathed them. The believer, although rebellious like David or Lot, doesn't ever fundamentally loathe God. That is, there's this hatred towards God. They don't have that at all. They can't. They're born again. They're fallen. They're confused. They rationalize. One of the things you do as a Christian is you rationalize. These people aren't rationalizing. They hate God. They want to devour the sheep. They're not playing games. They're just playing games as outwardly, but in their hearts, they know exactly what they're doing. 
the judgment and verses 15 through 17, the Lord said to me, take for yourselves the implements of a foolish shepherd. For indeed, I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that are still stand. But he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear the hooves in pieces. Why? Because God hates them? No, because that's what they want. God's giving them exactly what they want. They want these kind of shepherds. They're devouring one another. We read that verse 6 and verse uh, 9. This is what they want. God said, I'm going to give you what you want. You're not going to like it. God's punishment upon them. Not because God is petty, because God is holy, righteous, and just, and zealous for his people to protect them from falsehoods about him and his truth. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. The sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall be completely withered, and his right eye shall be totally blinded. They hate God, they hate the sheep, and they use God's flock for their own gain, and God will judge them. Praise be his name. I went through Micah, and here we have it again, overlapping categories of society and the church. about Social justice. Justice, public justice. We can't use that word anymore. It's completely ruined, right? Social justice. Completely ruined. There is such a thing. You have it in the Bible. It talks about it. We need to own it, like we need to kind of own the rainbow, right? <laughs> it's there, and we, of all people, should be most zealous for that kind of justice, especially in the church of God, and not put up with liars and cheats and half-truths, but what? Desire the pure milk of the word of God. Not watered down, not mixed in with chocolate milk, <laughs> sugars. God will judge them. He will take their sight. That is knowledge, clearly, obviously, the metaphor of knowledge and understanding and insight, and arm, that is power and ability, away from them. Right now, it doesn't seem like it's happening at all. Again, there are lots of false sheep, false shepherds, excuse me. See them on social media, see them on TV. We think of all the obvious ones. There's a lot of not so obvious ones either. They don't have to have big churches. It's not the sign of a false, false teacher. They got a big church, suspicious about him. <clears throat> no, not at all. But it will happen. It will happen. God will take away their power. It may be temporary. Remember Ted Haggard? Colorado, was it 2008 or 9 or something? Was it well, a long time ago? So, yeah, 13 years ago. I wrote about it when I was writing for examiner.com. It must have been 2007. And sure, he came back like two years later. He started a new church, but it's not back to his own glory anymore. It's just faded away. So God can do it here and now, and he has done it many times. We pray to that end. We certainly pray for his conversion and repentance, yes. But again, we pray that they would be undercut and taken away, that God would bring some kind of judgment, punishment. God punishes Christians if they're rebellious, and we want that because we want them to learn and to grow and to repent. We've been through it ourselves. We've been punished by God. At the end of the day, what we should get from these verses, and I'll preach uh, on verse 16 from the positive perspective next week, coming up, is that God is zealous for his people to protect them from false sheep, but he is so zealous of his good name that if you don't want that protection, he will give you judgment. You're going to learn one way or the other. You're going to repent now, or you're going to repent later. Repent now, you don't have to go through all the judgment. Unfortunately, I fear in the American churches, there's a lot of people delaying repentance, so we keep having more and more false false teachers. Sorry, I I say prophets, but you know I mean teachers. 
God loathes and judges false teachers. We read in verse 17, he gives them false shepherds, but he also judge those false shepherds. Remind yourself of that fact that he will judge them. When everyone else tells you not to be so harsh, our zeal should be for God, not for man. He has equipped us, especially on a Reformed tradition, to know the truth, to spot false teachers, to believe the word and apply it, and we ought to do that. And trust that God will judge false shepherds, even as we pray that he would have mercy on the sheep. Let us pray.